Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to discover more through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit, and my name is Aiden. This podcast will serve as a space to exchange ideas from the collective experience. Good afternoon, everyone. We hope everyone had a relaxing weekend. Today's guest is Will Pham, a licensed social worker who has been accumulating clinical hours to become a psychotherapist. When he was a child, he was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, or known as PR. It is a rare genetic condition that involves a breakdown and loss of cells in the retina. In short, his vision regressed every year and eventually leads to his blindness. This condition sparked his passion in helping and educating others in other similarly stigmatized fields. He comes with a deep wealth of knowledge and experience in mental health in the field of counseling and therapy. In this episode, we cover a wide range of topics from the important role of family dynamics in one's development and one's achievement in life, the danger of social media, and the relationship between optimality and perfectionism. Please enjoy our discussion this week with Will Pham, and thank you for tuning in. Good afternoon, everyone. On this week, we have my coworker, Will Pham. He is another coworker of mine from my nonprofit agency that we talked about, and he comes with an array of experiences and certifications. He has a master's degree in social work. He is a licensed social worker, and he's currently in pursuit of his practices in clinical therapy. So we are very excited to have him on board for this show, and I would like to turn the mic over to him for him to introduce who he is, his background, his journey so far. So, Will, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. So, of course, as Benoit had discussed, uh, most of my background is in social work. Uh, the way I got into social work is actually through my own experiences of um, being blind. So, uh, growing up, I grew up with a renal degenerative condition called retinitis pigmentosa. Um, so, I was diagnosed with that when I was in first grade. And so, I think with having that condition, it wasn't really something that ever had seriously impacted me until um, I had reached high school because because it is a degenerative condition, your vision is progressively getting worse. So when I had hit high school, it was like a time when I remember walking into um, a, a class and like looking at a textbook and realizing that I couldn't see any of the, the text on the page anymore. Um, so that first year was an uh, extremely difficult year for me. And um, through that process, I was connected to, through my, my school's guidance counselor, a lot of different social workers who had really assisted me in kind of um, uh, giving me the appropriate academic supports to kind of get through high school. And through that experience, like I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to go into social work, but I definitely wanted to kind of provide that feeling of support to someone else in some capacity. Um, so I kind of toyed around with a lot of different uh, career paths, but it definitely did end up going back into social work, uh, which is uh, what I did for my undergrad and grad experience. And you talked about that your blindness was not really considered as defective or affected your daily life until you got, came to high school. So when you first heard about the diagnosis about this rare condition that you have, how were you able to uh, internalize that? Because unlike a lot of people who were born into blindness, right, they sure. didn't know what to give up and they didn't know the, I guess, the vibrantness of the world because they were born into it. Uh, in the contrary, you were born just like everyone else and you were able to witness the sun, the, the senses, the sensory and all that. And where your condition was uh, regressive, so you're going to progressively lose that. How did you internalize that and how are you able to accept that condition in a way that's uh, considered as productive? Yeah, for sure. I think growing up as a kid, 
uh, before I had experienced more significant vision loss, um, honestly, it didn't really affect me that that much. I just was like the kid in the classroom who uh, had really thick glasses and had to sit in the front. But aside from that, it didn't really have that much of, of an impact on me. I remember like growing up and uh, there would be just be different things that my family would do, like out of a concern of like wondering where my like vision was. So I have these like very specific memories of like driving in uh, during like long car rides with my family and my like mom asking me to to read street signs on on the highway and seeing like how close we had to be to be able to actually for me to fully read the the signs. So I think. Uh, when I was younger, it didn't really have a significant impact on me. I just knew that I was like the kid who had bad vision. Uh, later on, when I was in high school and kind of walking to that class and kind of experiencing the like shock of like realizing how much vision I'd actually lost like over the like summer, I think that for me was definitely a much difficult, much more difficult thing. Um, you know, I think when you're in a position where so much of your life has been visually learning uh it definitely turns things around when you realize that that can't be your your main mode of kind of like building comprehension so yeah i think in in high school was really really difficult because i think that for myself it was like such like a huge point of like insecurity and like i didn't really want people to necessarily know that i had um any type of like visual condition and so for me i think like the early years of high school slash later on high school is like an extremely difficult time uh, and just like managing it. At the time, I was uh, going to a hospital that had a retina specialist in Boston. I think it was actually at like Harvard Hospital that I'd gone to and they had just like run like a huge array of tests. Um, and yeah, I remember coming back from that hospital experience and just being told that there would be a day that I would lose all of my vision. That was like a pretty big shock. Uh, yeah, it was just a really difficult thing to to deal with. And at the time, again, you know, I really didn't feel like my family kind of fully understood that experience. Everyone was just like very concerned. Uh, but that to me kind of just like made things much harder. So many of our guests that we have on, of course, everyone comes with different type of family dynamics sure. and different families serve as different pillars and different supportive roles in their lives. And it sounds like your family didn't necessarily quite understand the specific challenge and the condition that you're going through, except the fact that they knew you were going to uh, become blind eventually, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So with that gap of understanding uh, between your family members and yourself, how were you able to, or what did you do to help man manage and navigate that gap of understanding between yourself, between your challenges and what your family thought you were going through? Yeah, I think it's hard, right? Because... I think most people don't grow up with any exposure or experience with people who are blind. I think that was what was really difficult for my own family where like my mom didn't really understand it because she essentially just didn't really know what to do. You know, it's like when a kid is like losing vision and his the end result will be him having no vision. It's like as, as like a parent, you're, you're super worried, but you don't necessarily know what supports can be provided, especially if you just, just have had no understanding or exposure to like what can be helpful. Um, and so, but I grew up in like a, a really kind of like interesting family. So I grew up in like a single parent household. And as a kid, I don't think I had fully recognized how hard my mom worked until I got older, but like my mom worked extraordinarily hard. And I definitely grew up in a setting where like achievement was uh, like a pretty big thing uh, in terms of that being pushed, um, particularly academically. And so you're kind of put as like a as like a blind kid, you're kind of put in this like weird position, right? Where 
when you don't have the adequate supports, but you're, you still come from a family that really pushes achievement and the importance of education. And so I was kind of like put in a very difficult position where like, like I really wasn't kind of sure how to approach it. I just knew I just had to work really hard. And so I think during that time period, like luckily I had a really good group of friends that had really supported me through my high school years. Um, and through that time period, I just had to do things uh, that were just like a little bit different than the like, other students. Like just like the process of reading took me much longer. I think at that point in high school, I didn't really have uh, many like uh, like non-visual skills that were built up yet. So I was just kind of manually reading and that process was very slow. But what that allowed me to do was kind of uh, like interestingly enough, kind of build just patience, right? Where like if X thing takes a student 30 minutes to read, it might take me double the amount of time. So like every piece of work that I'm doing takes me double the amount of time. So it's just like building patience and like kind of understanding that these are my like circumstances and kind of pushing through it and just, um, just, you know, taking the amount of time that I need to, to get something done. And that's just kind of been how things have, have gone. Did you find that you were retaining the information more, like putting in that deliberate time, like to the example you said, if you're spending two, twice the amount of time learning the information or reading it, would you find it easier to actually retain the information or did it become more uh, comprehensive in the learning that you were doing? I guess in comparison sure. to the way you were learning, you mentioned you were a visual learner to begin yeah. with and then did those new strategies kind of help your learning and especially like compared to the peers, just what was that school experience kind of like? I'm not really exactly sure if because of the amount of time that I was spending extra in terms of just going through the physical process of like reading, uh, like assisted my comprehension. I felt like my comprehension was pretty decent through high school. Everything just kind of took longer and it was just a little bit more cumbersome. Could I actually ask you guys a question? Yeah. So one of the things I'm actually curious about is uh, how much you guys know about the climber Alex Honnold? Definitely not much. I haven't heard of not Alex much. Honnold. Okay. Alex Honnold is a, um, a pretty famous climber. Um, I think he was most famously known recently. Uh, he had uh, done the film Free Solo, and he's most famously known for doing free solo climbs, essentially, like climbing without any gear, right? Uh, and one of the things I thought was like really interesting through that process is like he talks about um, the idea of, uh, of, of being perfect and kind of like his own family dynamics have, have led him to be in that place. Because essentially with free solo climbing, essentially what happens is a climber is practicing on a route for months and months and months, right? So they are literally practicing each one of the, the holds. And then when they feel like they're kind of psychologically and physically ready, they will take off all the equipment and then climb, you know, a huge rock face. Um, in, in this case, he climbed um, uh, El Capitan, which is a huge, huge, huge rock face um, that took um, several hours for him to climb with, without any gear. And so it's when you're going through that process, um, that's kind of the epitome of perfection, right? Because if you literally um, kind of slip or are not doing a certain movement correctly, it just ends up in death. And so one of the things I think was really interesting was he had kind of talked about the idea that for himself, um, you know, feeling perfect, even if it was for a brief moment, was something that, you know, was like extremely gratifying. And he had come from a family where his mom didn't really uh, show him too much emotional responsiveness. Um, in, in the film, he talked about two things that were really interesting, like her two kind of classic lines were almost doesn't count and good enough isn't. And so one of the things I'm also curious about is like for you guys in terms of like your family dynamics, do you feel like 
you guys grew up in a family that was like very big on achievement and did you guys grow up in families that uh, that weren't very traditionally emotionally responsive and also how that kind of affected you guys yeah for sure I think early on achievement was always kind of like a cornerstone of I guess our upbringing um, obviously I think with the importance of academics and learning you know we're definitely blessed to come into like a pretty I guess, intelligent family. So knowing that intelligence as well as um, opportunity, we ended up going to one of the better public schools in Pennsylvania. I mean, just the nature of the area that we live, I think, has a lot of the better schooling. So presented with that opportunity of both inherent intelligence as well as opportunity of situation, achievement was always very much important, both in more so academics, not as much sports. I think this definitely um, evolved as we got older and older. I think my parents started to recognize the trying more so, like trying your best more so than a specific number on an exam or a specific letter grade. Um, but I think that was kind of a learning process both for my parents as well as for myself because when you're in middle school or even high school, obviously grades are such a important part of getting into the right college, kind of like setting up your whole future ahead of you. But as I guess more and more adversities come, whether that's harder classes or just life gets in the way, there's extraneous circumstances that might change the specific number. Um, One example that we talked about Andre last week is how running a specific time can tell numerous different stories. Same deal with an exam. Uh, Say 95 can tell so many different stories considering the context of how much time did you have to study? What stresses were you navigating in that specific exam time frame? You know, so I think as we were getting older, um, that kind of shifted away from an achievement model in more so just putting your full self and actually really trying your best Um, which is something that's kind of a lesson that we both continue to learn. I think that's also really healthy too. the idea of like the in particular in terms of like academics, the number grade doesn't matter as much as as just the idea that that you're trying your your best. Um, I don't necessarily I didn't necessarily grow up in that family. Um, The kind of family I grew up in was more like the the number grade mattered more if you tried your best or not. And uh, the kind of family I grew up in was very much like if the number grade wasn't there, then that was inherently showing that you didn't try your, your, your best. Um, what what were your experiences with that, Benoit? So, well, I, it's similar to your because I'm also as an Asian-American descendant. Of course, I received my citizenship and naturalization. So I didn't grow up in the Western education system until high school years. But my mom was definitely the stereotypical Asian tiger mom. She put me, she put the education and the grades and the whole academic achievement on a pedestal. And, but I think she was less inclined towards using metrics as the education system as to measure or my outcome of my success, more of of she wanted to use my effort as as the metrics, which I really appreciated. But I think that's another thing because she was such a high achiever and the generational gap, I think, in terms of understanding comes from the fact that our previous generation, they hold themselves onto such a standard because of their circumstances, like the point that Aiden was alluding to. And my mom definitely went through extremely more strenuous and circumstantial life than that I have. While I was born into everything, I was born into a very prestigious or privileged socioeconomic background versus my mom. She had to go through so much more hardships, such as losing my grandfather at a very young age. 
And my grandma, back in the days, were in Asia where women weren't expected to work. So my grandmother didn't really was equipped with adequate skills to survive in the Asian culture, especially it's like super patriarchal, where men are perceived and considered as a power holders in every aspect in society in Asia. So with those generation gap, but I think my mom understood that I was given into my innate abilities, the certain amount of intelligence I was born into because of my parents' high, high academic and professional achievements. But yeah, I wasn't always the tryhard up until I think college. I was able to breathe through and survive high school because of the intellectual hardware I was given. But a lot of times I didn't really find a lot of subjects and classes interesting. And so it definitely took me until college to, I guess, for me to excel or for me to fully tap into my potential. And, but I think with that being said, I have a question for you, Well, is that you talked about, I think family dynamics, it comes down to either your family are supportive or they're not supportive or they're trying to be supportive, but they're, they fall short. And I think as fellow Asian American like yourself and like myself, that you are born into this expected realm of achieving certain outcome, right? Despite your circumstances, despite your condition. And of course, I think that your mom was trying to be understanding because they, first of all, they don't really know what to do with their condition because it's a first. And I think in the Asian culture, we, our culture puts so much more emphasis on a lot of stigmas. And a lot of times I think that it's difficult for them to navigate between, or for them to internalize between their expectations and the reality. Because a lot of times you can expect something to happen, but there's so much hardships and obstacles that are on the way that you have to take considering to for the outcome. And my mom, I think, was able to do that to a certain degree. But a lot of times my mom was hard on me because she knew I didn't try my hardest. So, and that's why a lot of times she was disappointed in the outcomes or the grades that I produced, not because of the certain letter grades or the percentage, but because of the lack of effort that was attached to the outcome of my, of my, of my grades. So in this sense, do you think or what did you do to help navigate between, because you said that your condition enabled you to be very, very hyper patient with everything that you do. And did that patience also apply to your own family dynamics? Because when you didn't get that A or didn't get the 96% that your mom was expecting, how did you get able to navigate that versus like, maybe she was disappointed in your outcome or were you disappointed in the outcome or how are you able to manage all that intertwined, interconnected expectations between yourself and your mom? Yeah, I think it's had a lot of different effects in my own life. I think one of it is definitely like developing some uh, kind of intensive like perfectionistic tendencies. So for me, it's like when you grow up in a family where achievement is like a really important thing and you may not meet that, you're kind of constantly striving for that, right? Like in every situation, striving for uh, you know, like high achievement or striving for perfection, right? My family wasn't very like emotional in the sense of like growing up, like virtually no one in my family ever said the words, I, I love you. Um, at any point in my own life, like I can't remember a time when my mom had ever said to me or my sister that she was proud of something that we did. And so I think with those dynamics too, it's like as someone growing up in that kind of context, you're kind of constantly striving to gain approval. I think like for me, that has definitely manifested in developing certain tendencies of trying to constantly uh, like reach perfection, which I think it's difficult, right? Because, um, you know, when you do uh, put in significant efforts and you kind of like reach what you perceive to be perfection, um, it's, it's a phenomenal feeling, but I feel like it's also like a dangerous slope. 
both of you guys, I'm sure you guys uh, know about um, obsessive compulsive disorder, right? Yep. So obsessive compulsive disorder, what is really interesting about a condition like that is that the obsessive piece is like a thought, right? It's like you can be obsessing about anything, right? And so in this condition, uh, the second piece is the compulsion, which is the action, right? So it's like, I may have a thought about, you know, um, about needing to like wash my, my hands and that may be tied to thoughts about like cleanliness, etc. And then the act of washing your hands actually kind of reduces your anxiety, right? So it's kind of almost reinforcing the obsession. So every time you're obsessed with something, you engage that compulsion, it reduces your anxiety minimally. Uh, but then it kind of strengthens in your head the idea that you need to keep doing this, right? And so I feel like having perfectionistic tendencies, depending on the degree, it's it's like almost a cousin to OCD, right? Because it's like you are working so hard to try to reach perfection. And then when you perceive that you do, there's all these awesome things that happen from it, right? You get approval from like either work or school. Um, there's like some type of like praise involved in that in terms of like reaching some, some type of like standard. Uh, and then unfortunately what that does is like, that similar to OCD, it reinforces the fact that you have to keep doing that. And I think what can be difficult out of that is when you get to a point of for every single thing, um, not having the ability to kind of fully assess like the times when you need to be putting in max effort um, and the times when um, it isn't necessarily optimal or necessary. Yeah, absolutely. The relationship with perfection is definitely, I think, super widespread, especially with how prevalent social media is becoming just because, you know, everyone says the people's timeline is their perfect life in a lot of ways. They're not posting about their struggles. They're generally posting the best things or their idea or image of perfection. So I think that almost to what you said, it is kind of a slope, but this almost creates like a funnel of it because it's not just an inherent perfection that might be generated from upbringing or personal experiences, but it's also being exacerbated by the widespread perfectionism a lot of times. Like Ben and I just kind of talked through my perfectionist tendencies when it comes to posting on Instagram because I personally want to make sure that like the content I'm producing or the things I'm writing, I believe in and I really am proud of, I guess, right? Like I want to put my full self into what I'm writing. But then there's also that delicate balance of what you said of reaching that perfectionism or just putting stuff out to keep the ball rolling, right? So I guess to embrace the process rather than to try and get to that end perfection point in a lot of ways. Like, what did you call it? The perfection point and the optimal point? Perfection point often is a lot higher than the optimal point, but that spread of work and energy that you have to get from optimal to perfection is generally not sustainable or even realistic. I think one of the things that you said that was really interesting is kind of talking about uh, your own experiences that, with that within social media. I think just the kind of culture we live in with social media kind of heightens that, you know, the idea that we live in a world now where like people's lives are so much more visible through social media than virtually any other time period, right? And it's like when you have that level of exposure at all times, I feel like it also pushes, it propels people to kind of have a certain image, not only online, but just like offline also, and kind of to be able to maintain that. So it kind of almost like reinforces the idea that, hey, not only do I have to have, uh, you know, uh, a perfect image online or an image that displays me in the most positive capacity possible, but, you know, in, uh, in real life to be able to kind of do that too. 
Yeah, I, I, have, I have like very mixed feelings about social media. When I was in grad school, there was a situation where, because at, at the time, um, all of us were kind of in different field placements, um, working uh, within like different, like spe- with like different specific um, social populations. And this one student came into a class one day and had talked about how he had been working with a student who had pretty significant issues with depression. And the student had gone on to Facebook and had seen a like fellow classmate, uh, you know, during the previous weekend, just having like the best time of their lives. Right. And I think what's so interesting about that is like, you know, being older, we were able to recognize that social media, it's like the highlights of someone's life. Right. And this kid, because of just like how young they were uh, and because of like the lack of like just like pure life exposure and experience, like wasn't able to necessarily recognize that in the same way. And that's, I think that can be like a very difficult thing with uh, the uh, the impact of social media when you're a kid. You know, also too, uh, it, made, it made me think about this other situation where a friend of mine in college had told me some story about how she had roommates who would go out um, you know, every Friday and would go out and like party and like dress up and they would take photos together and on social media, it would look like they were just having like the best time ever, right? But consistently they'd come back like every Friday, every Saturday night and would just have the worst time. But like no one would ever know that, right? Because like online, like the the image is just like, they're such good friends, they're having the best time. And so I think it can be a real challenge. Absolutely. And I think that's so prevalent. Have both of you guys seen that like meme that's going around of the Toronto Maple Leafs kid that's taking a selfie with his girlfriend? No. So it's like a 6-1. He's there with his girlfriend. They're like sitting in the nosebleeds. And his team's down 6-1, clearly like a huge hockey fan, has like the hat on, the jersey, and his girlfriend like goes up for a selfie. So you just see him crack this little smile, she takes the picture, as soon as she like goes back to her phone, he just looks like he's like absolutely miserable, completely straight face, like having the worst time. But it really just, I think, represents this exact situation of like, yeah, the picture that she sent and probably posted on our picture, oh, having a great time at the hockey game. In reality, this kid's fuming because his team's losing by seven, six goals. And, you know, she's just there for the photos and stuff like that. But it's the perception externally is often misaligned with what's currently, I guess, the internal perception or the internal experience. For sure. In a lot of ways yeah i think that's the perfect i guess analogy to compare like the optimality versus perfectionist view because i know that will that you definitely have a lot of tendencies and exhibit a lot of perfectionist behaviors and aiden you talked about you definitely exhibit the similar tendencies for social media production because i think all of us who are considered as high achievers we embody and we live through a lot of high high standards and we ha- we put ourselves to match a certain outcome because we believe we have the ability to and that's like the inner world is like the hockey kid where his inner world is his miserable because his team is down six goals and then the outer world is that the selfie that his girlfriend that took with his with her boyfriend where you're perceived as happy but in reality you're not and i think the optimality point or the optimal point is objectively the standard that you're you're generally producing a very optimal outcome your outcome in your uh, work production is generally optimal right that's like the optimal point but then your inner reality is you're always striving for that perfectionist point and you're exerting so much that marginal difference between the optimal point and the perfectionist point and in, in reality you could have spent that and reallocated that marginal effort and energy and talents 
whereas towards something else because you hit that outer reality of optimal point but you're trying so hard to go for your inner reality and your inner perception of what you consider as optimal uh, which is actually the perfectionist point, right? So I think the optimality and, uh, and perfectionist point definitely comes into your mental thoughts because it's all mental. And it's like you talked about a person that's diagnosed with OCD condition, it's hard for him and her to let go of their obsessive compulsive control because in their minds, they have to hit what they consider as optimal or what they consider as perfect, which is the obsessive component. And then the uh, compulsory opponent is that they cannot help it which is what you talked about. So I think I want to use that to circle back into our your life about, you talked about where you had to exert twice as effort on everything, right? And of course, that may not necessarily help you to retain more information because you're just simply exerting more effort to, I guess, achieve the certain standard of what you consider as optimal. And did you, do you think that your mom or your family was able to see that, that you're in your own way, you're trying as hard as you can and you may not always hit what, they consider or where your mom considers the optimal point and if that was the case how did you able to manage that and i'd love to hear more about how you were able to eventually come to acceptance of your condition because i think to strive and to, to be better at something you have to uh or the saying is you know like the aa meetings acceptance is the first step to recovery of course you're not recovering from anything sure yeah, but yeah. i think a lot of times people definitely are not achieving their optimal or their maximum capacities because they're not accepting who they are. And of course, your condition is part of who you are as a person. And if you didn't accept your condition, then of course, you wouldn't be here right now with your school trainings, your degrees and your certifications. So I just love to talk about your insight and your process of making what helps you to uh, navigate uh, your internal standards versus your mom's standards and how you're able to fully come to acceptance of your condition as a whole. When I think about that, one of the things I think about is I think in coming to the place I have now, so much of it when I was younger was essentially just uh, like, unfortunately, kind of just doing my own thing and trying my best to kind of not give in to my mom's expectations, I guess, because it's difficult, right? Like in high school, as like a kid, you're dealing with blindness, but as every teenager, you're also just dealing with like general teen angst. So like, I just remember like a lot of time in high school just like spent like in my room and like not engaging with my, my like other family members. So I feel like in terms of my level of efforts, like my mom would know that I would like stay up super late to do work, uh, but she didn't really maybe fully understand the extent of like how much effort was being put in, like whether it was like the like late nights or like the efforts are put in like actually during school time. But yeah, again, I think if in looking back at it, I, I, there's no way that I could have, but I really wish that there was some way that I could have been more, uh, more compassionate for myself and more understanding of myself to kind of accept the blindness piece of it. Because I think losing vision in high school is such a difficult thing, right? Because it's like a time period where you are the most self-conscious about yourself. So you're kind of going through this time where you're super self-conscious about yourself and like the way that people are perceiving you, but you don't necessarily understand that everyone's feeling that way. Um, so it kind of, it makes you feel like you're kind of alone in the space. And I think like as a, a blind kid, it's particularly difficult, right? Because like, I think traditionally in society, blindness is seen as a like weakness, right? So it's like, uh, whether it's blindness or anything else, everyone kind of wants to kind of, not display any signs of like weakness and so for me it was like just like trying my best to like hide it and not be obvious about it which made my life so much more difficult right because 
like during times when I connected with teachers to kind of get accommodations for certain things, there's this kind of weird thing that was going on where I was like, I don't want you to be obvious about this, but I want the help, right? So it kind of puts teachers in like a very uncomfortable position. Um, I am so grateful of the, the fact that they just kind of like went with it. Uh, but I think, you know, high school is very difficult in that sense. And uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of like, kind of like strange things that I would kind of do to like hide the fact that I had this condition because like during high school and college at that point, I still wasn't using a cane yet. And that was very dangerous for me in the sense that my condition is particularly exacerbated when I'm in like low light level situations. So if I'm switching light levels, like if I'm outside, it's like super sunny and I walk into like a very dim um, room with my condition, my, my pupils take significantly longer to adjust. And so when I'm walking into a dim space, I essentially have zero vision, right? When that happens, you're, you're doing kind of different things, like you're fumbling with things, pretending to, to do something to just give yourself time for your pupils to like adjust so that you don't seem weird. But yeah, so there's just like a lot of things that had happened, um, you know, throughout high school and college. And even through college, I was connected to different services um, through uh, different like nonprofits and um, like, like social work agencies that definitely like helped me out tremendously through that process. But I still wasn't necessarily comfortable enough in myself to be okay with, uh, you know, kind of identifying as someone who's, who's blind because for so much of my life, I went, uh, and just said that I have like a visual impairment or I'm like legally blind. Right. Um, and I remember this one particular instance where I was in high school where this orientation and mobility structure, someone who like comes and like teaches a, uh, a, a potential um, student about cane travel and like using a cane, he came to me and it was a very weird interaction when I was in high school, but it was like, I think my junior or senior year of high school, he came to me, we had like a sit down and he asked me, hey, uh, his first question to me was, what do you think of when you think of a blind person? And at the time, I literally had no idea what he meant. So I just like kind of sat there in science. I was like, I have no idea what this guy wants me to say. Um, and so then he was like, do you think of someone in a suit, like a very professional person? And I also didn't really know what he said. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so, at the time, who's just like really trying to make me challenge the idea of what perceptions society has for like a blind person and what they can do versus the average idea of like what being blind means. And at the time, he really wanted me to, um, you know, take up his like services and like learn how to use a game and kind of go through that process. And I remember going home and I was talking to my like mom about it, and she was like, "Absolutely not. My mom did not want me to like use a cane," and her mentality was. If I use a cane, it will be super obvious and that will affect people's perceptions of me and in a very negative capacity and also affect perceptions for our family, right? And so I didn't use a cane um, throughout high school, throughout college. Uh, you know, there are times where I was put into very dangerous situations because of that. And during my senior year of college, I was put into a, a situation where uh, because I transferred schools, some of the the credits that I was um, that I previously had received through my first year before I transferred didn't transfer over, and so I had to take um, more classes during my last year, and so that resulted in more f more finances that m that my family wasn't ready for, and so I during the time I applied to a scholarship through Connecticut's uh, National Federation of the Blind. And honestly, for me, it was just like, hey, this is like a chance for me to get some money to pay off, you know, um, some some of that um, school debts. And that's kind of 
pretty much all I thought about it. Like you just had to, you know, check off the fact that you were, you know, at least legally blind, which what that means is um, essentially there are kind of various levels of blindness. I think some people have the idea of like, either you have like perfect vision or you have zero vision. Of course, there's like a lot of gray areas, right? Like people wear glasses and people have like, if you're 90% blind, you have 10% vision, like what does that mean, right? But to be legally blind essentially means that, right? You have like 90, you're 90% blind, you have 10% vision. Uh, and the specifics of it are having 2200 vision, which is if an average person can see something from 200 feet, um, the legally blind person would have to see it from 20 feet, right? Uh, but with that being said, uh, so, you know, I applied for the scholarship, won the scholarship, had to go to a conference to accept it, right? And so uh, in winning that scholarship, there was someone who had contacted me and was just like giving me details about the conference. And at the time he was one year older than me and he had asked me, hey, you know, um, what are you doing right now? Like, this is like your last year of like, college. Like, what are your plans afterward? And at that time I was like, super burnt out of school. I had no idea what I wanted to do. My family was like, hey, like you should go to grad school. But I was like, I don't know if I could do more schooling. And so I just said, I have no idea. And he was like, well, um, he was at the time one year older than me. His path was, he was also thinking about grad school, but he said, hey, you know, I'm also blind. I ended up going into this program called the Louisiana Center for the Blind. And so I was like, oh, like what's, what's that like? And he said, you know, you spend, so you're there for an entire year. And you spend eight hours every single day blindfolded, regardless of like what level of, of vision you have. And you go through like extremely rigorous training. And so at that point, it was like, this seems like very intense. I don't know if this is going to be for me, but I was like, hey, I, you know, I would love to meet up with you at this conference and have some more discussion about it. So we go to, we go to the conference. I meet up with him. We have some more talks about it. He's just like saying like the most insane things to me. Like he said, hey, like the program, you know, one of the things we, there's like different components. One of the components is uh, cane travel. So you, you know, you learn how to use a cane for the first time, uh, regardless if you've used one before or not. Uh, and so one of the things you do at the end is called a drop route. So staff within the training center drive you to um, a location in the town you have no idea where you are, they drop you off, you can't ask any questions of anyone on the street and you have to make your, your way back. So I was like, oh my God, like this is like so crazy. Like how is it possible that someone can do this? And then he was like saying all these other things, like there's a, um, a cooking component because they really try to teach you like all the possible skills you will ever need to kind of be fully independent. And he said, the last thing you have to do for this cooking class is you have to cook a three course meal for 40 people from scratch by yourself. And I was like, that's insane. Like, like growing up for, for me, like my mom was so scared of me burning down the house as like a blind person that she like never let me cook. And so I was like, I'm, I, I like, I have no idea how to cook. Like how can I possibly cook a, you know, a, a three course meal from scratch for 40 people, you know? So, uh, so I think it was just like a very interesting idea at that point. And so I was like, Hey, I literally have no idea about what I'm going to do after college. So why don't I just do this? I remember like winning the scholarship, uh, going home and talking to my, my mom about it. And she was like, not for it. She was like, the idea of being blindfolded for an entire year, like that's like, that means that Will's in like prime, like, like danger zone for like an entire year. Right. And like, my mom's already like a huge warrior. So she was just not for it. But at that time it was like, really like, I was very much in a zone of like, I can't fully take in what my mom has to say. And like, this feels right for me. I just have to do it. So like kind of like against my mom's wishes, I just went for it and did it. Uh, so yeah, so what's what's really nice is that when you engage in a program like this, um, you can reach out to different government agencies and they can provide funding for you. So I went to this completely free, which really worked out for me because my family definitely did not have the financial means to pay for something like this. But 
Yeah, so I remember I had like a conversation with the program's director and yeah, I remember just saying to her on the phone, like, I'm really excited to be scared for an entire year. Um, and yeah, I remember the the first day out of the airport. Uh, so I like flew down to Louisiana. It's like in this extremely small town in, uh, in Ruston, Louisiana. I flew down. There was another student who's coming from Connecticut. So we were both coming at the same time. So someone was picking us up. And so while the staff member comes out and initially I was like so confused because like this person had zero vision. So they're walking around this airport getting super lost. um, And I was like trying to help this person out. And like the staff member wasn't helping them out at all. And I was like, why isn't this person doing anything? Right. This person has no idea where they're going. Like the staff member is not giving them very much direction and they're really struggling right now. Like why, why aren't they getting any help? And through the process of the training, I really understood why there was that mentality. Um, So this particular training center is very different than virtually any other training center across the the city, uh, um, across the states. There is only three centers like this. Um, They're specifically called structured discovery training centers. Uh, So they have a very specific kind of like training modality. Uh, Most training centers across uh, the United States, uh, the staff are most of the time people who are sighted. And the expectations are super low in terms of like what they push students to do. Um, At this particular training center, um, most of your instructors are all blind. So there are a couple of main classes that you take as like a student. There is cane travel, uh, which you learn how to use a cane and kind of learn all the travel skills. There's a braille class. So you learn braille either for the first time or you improve on your existing braille skills. There's a technology class where you learn how to use a computer completely non-visually. Uh, there's a cooking class uh, slash home ec class. And then there's also a class um, that's a shop class, which isn't necessarily like a life skill, but it's really more of a, um, a class to build confidence because a lot of students who come in um, living lives of being a you know, blind child have had very low confidence, very like low self-esteem. And so in this shop class, uh, they kind of take you step by step and then you end up using like all these crazy power tools with like no adjustments, right? Uh, and you have to build a like project by the end of it. So like, that's like a huge confidence builder in terms of like, you know, using all this crazy, uh, you know, power tool equipment and, you know, at the same time being completely safe because throughout all these classes, you have to be blindfolded. Uh, so yeah, so I think it was just like a very interesting experience. So Will, we really appreciate you sharing about your very over-encompassing and very inclusive experience with your training center and it sounded like that training center served as a platform for you to get exposed and for it was like a very accelerated learning experience for you but i do want to jump back and talk about the uh, judgment piece right because i think the reason why stigmas and misconceptions and misinformation are very toxic because of their derived from uh, and they're derived and are rooted in the judgment piece sure. a lot of times like like you said a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that blindness is on a spectrum because when i first was exposed to you on a professional setting because i personally never worked with a fellow person with the blindness before mm-hmm. especially you're you're at a position where many of us cannot achieve even though we don't have that condition so but what i realized is that a blindness is a spectrum and not everyone's is 100% blind and 100% visually capable, right? There's like a in-between and when you embarked on your journey to that training center, you're on the 90% blindness, 10% visual split and you were considered legally blind, but you still had some of visual ability left. Mm-hmm. But none of those would have happened and none of these 
interconnect experience would have happened for you to pick up cane traveling, cooking, and all the other if you didn't and find a way to overcome your judgment piece. Because the fact that when you're person who was when you're older who gave you this advice or who told you about this program that's out there you wouldn't even have considered the fact that if you were still in denial with your identity because i think everyone is born with multiple identities right which is what we call in our field intersectional intersectional identities where will you're a person with blindness you're a male you're an asian you're a son and everyone comes with different identities but I think for you specifically, your identity of blindness is such a predominant and significant factor of who you are because it affects your everyday life, literally. So how did you first able to manage and cope and overcome that judgment piece? Because the fact that your mom, of course, she cared about the whole face value. She wanted to, she really cared about the whole social perception, which is what stigma is, right? Stigma is literally misinformation and misjudgment from the societal level into a particular topic and field. And so how did you manage that? Like, first of all, how did you manage or convince yourself that you're like, hey, this is inevitable. I'm just going to accept I'm blind because that's part of who I am. Sure. And how did you combat that along where your mom was adding on to her judgments because she didn't want you to pre- perceive it as this person with weakness, right? The stigma. For sure. So I'm very interested about your, your, your ability to juggle that judgment. And we will talk more about what kind of judgment you face and your ability to dismiss and or not take any of these judgments seriously post-training. Yeah, I think when I first entered the training center, I was definitely still not on the full acceptance piece of it. I definitely had not um, fully like drank the Kool-Aid of the training center yet because some of their, their ideas, I think from an outside perspective, can be considered to be um, somewhat radical. But... I think part of the thing was it was really helpful to kind of be around other kind of uh, like, you know, blind role models, I think for sure, because like all of your instructors were all blind. They were all super successful. You kind of see them on like a daily basis, just kind of just, you know, navigating like super normal lives. And as you know, growing up in a smaller town, like maybe being the only blind person in my town, going off to school and actually... Um, the first school I went to was um, Union College, and I remember someone in the um, support services office literally said to me that I was the first blind person to ever attempt that that school. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I think so much of it for me was just, like, not having enough exposure to other blind people, um, particularly people who were successful, because my mentality for so long was, like, this is something that's really going to bring me down. Um, you know, like losing vision is going to lead to a path where I will not be employable. I will be at home and I'll probably be living with my parents for like the rest of my, my life. Like that's like my like internal, like negative self-talk. Right. But yeah, I think through the process of, you know, working with, with these instructors, like that had major impact because I remember very specifically during those cane trouble classes, like we'd be spending so much, you know, we'd be spending two hours like walking around. And when you're doing that, not only are you engaged in the class instruction, uh, but you also develop like a very close one-on-one relationship with, with your instructor. And my instructor, you know, definitely had assisted me greatly in that process because I think what was so great was that you see this person who's like, the fully formed person who's like the prime example of like what it means to be someone who like accepts blindness and is like killing it. And you think about yourself where you're so far away and 
it's difficult to kind of like comprehend how you can get there. But he told me these like very honest stories. Like like myself, he had the same exact condition I had where he was progressively losing vision when he entered, because he actually went to the training center himself. And when he entered the training center, he was pretty apprehensive about using a cane for the first time, but he went through the program, did very well in cane travel. And um, when he went home after the, the year-long program, he actually didn't even use his, his cane because he was too embarrassed about it, you know? And he was too embarrassed about it. He was too embarrassed to, like, you know, walk around his, like, hometown with, with a cane and be perceived as, like, a blind person. So he just didn't use it. And, um, you know, like, a summer later, he was asked to come back and work for the training center during one of their summer programs. And he came back and he felt so ashamed because... The training center had put so much work into kind of, um, you know, changing his ideas about what it means to be a blind person. Um, so there was like even a lot of internal co- conflict for him and kind of processing that and like understanding that it's like okay to like walk around and be like a confident blind person. I think just through those experiences of like having these like very, you know, real conversations with my cane instructor, having conversations with the other students who are at various levels of like blindness was uh, like extremely important for me to kind of come to terms with it. I remember, you know, during the Thanksgiving break, when I went home for the first time, I was really scared. I remember having these conversations with my cane instructor on our, during our classes, like telling him like, when I go home, like, I don't know how I'm going to like, deal with this because like, I can't fathom the idea of people seeing me with a cane. Like for forever, people have not seen me with a cane. They're going to see me with a cane. They're going to ask me all, all these questions because like people may have not known that I had, you know, that, that I'm, I'm blind. And so I was just like really scared. I remember I went home. I was hanging out with like friends who saw me for the first time with a cane and we went to a restaurant. And I remember when I walked in that restaurant, I was literally trembling. I was like shaking because I was so scared of like running into like someone else who's going to ask me questions because at that time like my, my close friends knew and my close friends knew that I was going to the training center and that I would be using a cane um, but no one else knew so I was just so scared about it um, and I think it's also that exposure experience of like having the courage to to put yourself in situations where you feel uncomfortable in this kind of way to come out of it and realize that it's totally okay and I think and I'm definitely not at a point where I'm like a hundred percent, you know, and uh, like comfortable and I'll always be comfortable. Cause I think it's like, I think forever will be uh, like a source of like insecurity, but I think it's like something that I'm always working on. And I think there was significant progress uh, because recently I went to my 10 year high school reunion. And so I remember talking to, to my friend and I, I remember saying like, I don't think I can go because like people will be asking me so many questions. I cannot do this. And he was like very encouraging. He was like, you know what? If, if you don't feel comfortable going, you totally don't have to go. But then we ended up going. And I remember like walking into this place where it's like all these people from high school that I haven't talked to in like a long time. And like, there were certainly questions, but then at the end of it, I also realized like, you know, people 10 years later are actually just like super chill. And like, it wasn't actually that big of a deal, right? Mm-hmm. And like moments like that, I thought were so impactful because you build up this thought in your head that something's gonna be so bad, right? And then you have the experience and then you have insight. Um, you know, uh, when I was in grad school, there, there was this discussion about the idea about experience uh, before insight, right? The idea like sometimes you have to have an experience directly to have the insight from it. It's difficult to have it be the other way around, right? So. I love that you said that. There's a saying that I really like is wisdom is the synthesis of knowledge and experience, right? So you need to have both of them interchangeably. Like you can read a book, you can gain knowledge through a book, you can have experiences to gain some sort of knowledge, but wisdom is actually the combination of the two, which sounds like the experience you had, you know, 
combining both the technical skills as well as the experience of the training center itself kind of came together for the insight, as you said, and wisdom kind of all overarching. Yeah, I appreciate both of you stating that because, of course, before we talk about the idea where experience breeds perspective, and in this case, insight. So it definitely sounds like you went through an overall extremely satisfying and life-changing, I would argue, experience. So it's funny because I think the training center is such a different experience from many settings because we, t- we use the idea of teaching someone how to fish versus give them a fish, right? But I think the, the mission statement of the whole training center is built on that idea of they really want to foster independence and to empowerment, right? Because they're putting you in these seemingly impossible and extremely, extremely difficult situations where you're doing many things for the first time and you're being instructed by someone who's considered by society as a weakness, which is blind instructors. But I think it was empowering because you, like you talked about, you're put into a setting with many positive role models and they tell you firsthand, literally, that everything is possible and then they're living normally, quote unquote, like everyone else, even with this condition. Because I do want to talk, uh, talk more about your specialization and your concentration in mental health and the whole therapy aspect. And of course, you're not a uh, clinical therapist as of yet and you're building your hours and that's your next transition in your professional life. But I think the reason why therapy is very difficult and there's so much stigma attached to therapy because of the awareness aspect, right? Because a lot of times self-awareness, I think, is one of the most difficult thing for people to internalize and to accept because to be self-aware, you have to be aware and fully accepting of your flaws and your conditions and whatever that may you have. In your case, for you to have that acceptance, for you to be truly self-aware is very difficult or it was difficult because of you consider blindness as such like a predominant and scary part of your identity. And if you are to be scared and be fearful of certain things, you cannot be aware of it. Well, you might be aware of it, but you're not, you might not be able to accept instances of it. And of course, with therapy, that space provides a lot of outlet and positive way for people to become not only self-aware, but become self-acceptance of their flaws. And that's how they progress and better. So, Will, when I first met you, I realized I think one of your greatest virtues that you had was that you're extremely self-aware and you knew your, your strengths and your weaknesses. And I think that only came afterwards because, like I said, you, you must have gone through so much different journeys and so many different processes to be able to fully come to acceptance of who you are as a person that includes all your components and all your aspects of your life. And so how has that been working for you? And because you talked about when you came home from the training center, you were terrified. And then we, Aiden and I, we talked about the idea of do not live your life predicated on the fear of other people's opinions. And of course, everything is mental and your fear and your fear for judgments become amplified and magnified in your head. But in reality, the experience versus insight aftermath to realize the insight actually wasn't that bad at all and it was all in your head people don't really care as much but how are you continuing using that and do you think that all of this experience helped you to become extremely comfortable with the judgments uh because i think you're extremely honest and you're very comfortable with vulnerability and the fact that you're willing to come onto the show and to share about such a vulnerable experience of who you are because it was very difficult of course even now hearing the things you went through I have all my five senses and I think if you put me in a whole traveling aspect and for me to be able to create and work on my mental mapping aspect where you put me in any city, I don't think I'll be able to find my way back in an adequate manner versus you did. So yeah, I like to talk about your 
your judgment piece and how you're able to use that skill set you picked up from the training center on a day-to-day and on, maybe on a professional level? Sure. Uh, on a day-to-day, I think that, you know, like I said earlier, the majority of people don't really have a lot of exposure to blind people. It's like if you walked up to any average person who said, hey, in your lifetime, have you ever talked to a blind person? Most people would probably say no, right? And so I think that there are a lot of misconceptions because of that, of like what it means. Um, you know, I think even one of the, the classic things that, that people say is like, hey, you know, when you lose your vision, all of your other senses are enhanced. And that is definitely very bogus. But I think the easiest way to think about it is like, where does that come from? Because it's like, if someone loses their hearing, does their vision get enhanced? And it's like most people don't have that perception, but for whatever reason, they have the opposite perception, right? And it's like, I think it's, it has a lot to do with the kind of images that we see of blind people, especially like portrayed in like media, right? It's like the blind person in a lot of different media is portrayed to be like mystical in some capacity. I think that there was like a Star Wars film where there's like a blind dude and like he kind of like he was blind but like he used the like force to be able to like guide him. So like that's also like kind of like like you know a, a mystical component of it. But yeah I think you know it's it's kind of part of the exposure piece. Like so little people are exposed to blind people so they kind of don't really know what to kind of expect or you know what it really means. I mean I think on a day-to-day basis like so many times I've been in like situations of like getting into an Uber or like, you know, just like walking around where people are like, what's that? And they'll be pointing to my cane and they have no idea what it is. Like I'll literally be walking around, I'll be using it. They'll, they have no idea what it is. And that's because I also use a slightly different type of cane. Um, when you're in the training center, they give you what's called a NFB straight cane. NFB stands for National Federation of the Blind. But it is a very different cane than what you would normally see. It doesn't fold. Um, and that has a couple different reasons, one of which is like, it doesn't fold because it forces you to not hide it. Um, and secondly, it doesn't fold because when, you, when a cane folds and you have grooves in a cane, it minimizes like the sensitivity of the like, cane to be able to feel different textures. So it's, it's a more optimal cane and it's physically longer. So, um, so my cane goes up to my, my nose if it's like standing straight. Most other canes are much shorter. A longer cane allows you to have more reaction time. So it allows you to like walk faster, right? Because if you have a very short cane and you're walking, it forces you to walk very slow in case you like bump into something, right? So I think just in the fact that people see this cane and have no idea what it is, I think that speaks volumes, right? Because like, it'd be super weird if someone with a wheelchair came into a building and three people were like, what is that, right? Like, that would be super weird, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's literally something that happens to me all the time. Like 25% of the time I'm outside, something is asked of me or something is said. Um, And many times people actually don't even believe that I'm blind. Like I'll be walking through Philly and it's very common for for me to hear, you're not blind. And then that to be followed by some type of like exploitive, like against me. It's like, it's, it's very weird. I think it's just like people don't, people typically don't see like a blind person kind of like walking quickly and like confidently. So it's like people have a certain idea of like what it means. Like I'm not wearing sunglasses. So it's like, you know, it's just like a, a different image that I think people are kind of used to. And uh, I think with that judgment piece, it's hard because the day you catch me on, like how stressed out I am that day, it kind of depends on how I deal with it. So I think it's it's the assumption that if you're blind, that means that you need help. Even if someone, like the second someone sees the cane, that's like an immediate indicator to them of like, this person needs help, even if I know nothing about them. And... 
there are times when I deal with that in providing the education piece of it and having like a talk with them if, if I have time about it. Um, or if I'm, I'm in a rush, I'll just say like, hey, I'm totally okay. And then I'll just, you know, cross the street and keep moving. So it kind of depends on the day. Also depends on how people ask me. Cause like some people are like super rude about it. But yeah, I think with the like, judgment piece, it it's hard, right? Because in a sense, it's like a microaggression. And so when you're just walking through Philly on like a day-to-day basis and this is like constantly happening to you, it gets very annoying, but then you also kind of like turn it off in the sense of like, you just like ignore it. Like someone says something, you just ignore it. And so I feel like I'm kind of more on that spectrum now where like I ignore it and don't, I don't really process it super heavily. Um, so I think like that's how I've kind of managed it because like in every situation with how, how much it happens, like, you know, you're not gonna have the time every like situation to like sit down and have a conversation to like educate someone, right? So. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly define the concept and the idea of microaggressions for some listeners out there who are unaware. So micro, of course, is micro, which is small, and then aggression is aggression. But microaggression, for example, is that people are exhibiting aggressive behavior in a very implicit and subtle way. So a common example that I tell people about is uh, for a person who's not Caucasian, right? A lot of times they could be Latinos, Hispanic, Middle Eastern, Brown, African-Americans, or Asian descendants. And then they will ask you, hey, where are you from? And you tell them, oh, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And then they will follow with the question of, no, where you're really from, which is what the question they're implying is, what's your ethnicity? Because you don't look like one of us. You're obviously not a Caucasian, so where are you from? So that's like an example for microaggressions. I just wanted to quickly define that for some people. But Oh, quick thing too. Uh, so to tell back a little bit um, and kind of adding a second layer to, to your question earlier about the, the judgment piece, I was just thinking about this. I think also too... I've also just gotten to a place of like when weird stuff happens, kind of putting myself in their shoes and like understanding, hey, this person is making this comment because they just haven't had the like exposure or et cetera. And kind of uh, taking like having like perspective taking in that sense and understanding where it comes from. Uh, also to the training center itself, it kind of forces you to be comfortable with yourself and uh, it forces you to get to a point of being okay um, with, you know, of course, a blind person. So I think that has also been tremendously helpful too and just like walking around on like a daily basis and hearing comments. Um, so, yeah. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.